Uh, and if you need one of our notebooks, I don't know if you have this or not, and you're wondering why it says Genesis and we're talking about how we got the book, because I want to go into how we got the book before I do Genesis. It's very, very important. And I'm going to tell you, it's been a part of, of how God um, dealt with me, what God deposited in me. It was a part of, of his forming and shaping me as a teacher and as a Christian first. That uh, he established my faith in this being the Word of God. And it's very, very important that you come to the conclusion that this is not just any book. There is no book like this book. This is the Word of God. Remember I told you last week, it's a meteorite. It came from another world. It is not like any book here. It's a meteorite. And so God wants you to be confident in that, especially as your faith and mine are daily attacked in a godless media. We need to know where our faith is. If you're in college, boy, are you going to need to know what I'm going to tell you tonight. If you're in college, our prayers are with you because colleges are filled with Marxists, with socialists, with atheists, and the godless. Well, that's another topic altogether, but I have strong feelings about it. So our prayers are with you. So let's pray, and we're going to look at uh, tonight at how we got the Bible. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for establishing us in the truth. Thank you, Lord, for helping us to understand that this is the very God-breathed word without error, accurate in all that it says. We thank you for establishing us. Church, can you just breathe a prayer with me right now and say, Lord Jesus, establish me in the faith and establish me in my convictions about the Word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You can be seated and thank you. I was born into a um, fairly intellectually inclined family. My dad was a member of uh, Mensa, which it's a national club of people who have IQs 140 or above. And so my dad was very cerebral. And when I got saved, I got peppered with questions that were not your average run-of-the-mill questions, but questions that had, that, that came from a scholastic standpoint, that came from a really, uh, Learn it about books standpoint, um, um, scientific questions, historical questions. I just got peppered with it. I didn't just go in and witness to my family and, you know, get, get through it with a breeze. No, I began to be peppered with these questions that made me go dig. And one of the real questions and one of the real objections of my dad and, and um, family was that uh, they didn't believe in Genesis, they thought Genesis was a myth and a fable and full of errors and full of mistakes. Well, I had to dig, and I had to dig into, how do I know this is the Word of God? How do I know this is accurate? How do I, was there really an Adam and an Eve? Did Jonah really get swallowed by a big fish? Was there really a tower of Babel, and God looked down and said, if I don't stop them, they're going to they're gonna succeed in building a tower to the glory of man? And he confused their languages where they couldn't understand each other. And all of a sudden, say what? And it went like that. And they couldn't lay another brick. And God ended it. Is that true? Is it true that there was a universal flood? I mean, all of these things 
mattered to me because I was being hit with it. And I was also in college. And I got to tell you, um, I went to a college near here. And it was known as a party college. And it was also known as a very anti-Christ, anti-God, anti-Christian college. And in my classes, boy, I remember clearly my science classes, my history classes, uh, they mocked and ridiculed you if you were a believer. In my radio, TV, film uh, classes, they mocked you and ridiculed you and rejected you and, and uh, just, uh, just ostracized you if you expressed faith in Christ. And so I had, I, I had professors tell me I'm dead wrong, that their evolution is the way it all came. And all these things, all I'm saying is my whole environment made me have to dig. I had to dig for some answers. And one of the things that God really established in me was the knowing, not just in my heart, but knowing intellectually that this is the Word of God. This is the Word of God. Now, there are some seminaries you can go to in this country, and they won't tell you that. There are some seminaries that you could go to, they would, they would tell you that these are the words of men that is full of contradictions, and it's just basically a, good, a book of some good stories with some good lessons about life, but it is certainly not the very Word of God. And of course, thank God, there's still some seminaries that won't do that, but they're, uh, they're definitely fighting for their life. Our culture today will not tell you this is the Word of God. The media will mock you if you think it's the Word of God. You'll be called an extremist. You'll be called uh, ignorant. You'll be called backwoods. You'll be called uh, all kinds of wonderful names because actually if you say this is the Word of God, you have committed intellectual suicide in their mind. But I declare to you tonight that intellectually it makes more sense that this is the Word of God than that it's not. And this book will bear scrutiny. This book will bear common sense. This book will, does not mind you asking all the questions of the world. As a matter of fact, I've noticed this about God, that whenever I've had a question that was really stumping me about the Bible, he always amazingly, miraculously, sovereignly got the answer to me. So this is the Word of God. You're holding in your hand a meteorite. Amen? It's from another world. Hold up your Bible with me, would you? Just hold it up. Say, this is my Bible, and this is the Word of God. And this is what Jesus used to defeat the devil. And if we say, well, it's got errors in it, how in the world are you ever going to use it against the devil? How are you ever going to fight temptation? If you come to the conclusion that parts of this are the Word of God, and, well, we're not sure about the rest. No, it's the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. So tonight, this is going to be like a classroom. Uh, this is not just, I'm not just going to take a verse and teach it. But I'm going to show you how we got the book, how our mail was sorted. That is, you've got mail, and it's in your hand, and it's the Holy Bible, and it's from God. Now, last time we saw that God has communicated to man via three main mediums, and they are inspiration, canonization, and transmission. All right, last time we talked about the first one, inspiration. What is inspiration? What does it mean in 2 Timothy 3.16 when it says all Scripture, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God? What did he mean? What, what does that word mean? That these men were inspired like you and I might be inspired after seeing a great movie or something? 
Is that what he means? No. The word inspiration comes from a Greek word, theo or theonoustos, and it means breathed out by God. If I wasn't breathing out right now, I couldn't be talking to you. You don't talk breathing in, you talk breathing out. I don't know if that's ever occurred to you, but try it. Well, try breathing in and talking. You can't do it. You got to breathe out to talk. Well, what the, what the Bible's telling us is that God spoke all Scripture. It was breathed out by God. You got to know that. So how do we get our Bible? Well, first of all, God breathed it out. God spoke it, and that's the claim of Scripture. This is what the Bible gives. Uh, this is what, where the Bible gets its unique authority. It is the very Word of God, perfect and without error in the original manuscripts. So God spoke the words that are in your Bible. This is why we call the Bible God's special revelation. Special revelation is available only to those who have access to biblical truth. Okay? So God's special revelation is given to us in that Bible. And it is an uncanny book, an amazing book. There's no book like it on the earth. Now, we also saw that God has spoken to all of mankind through what's called general revelation. Special revelation is the Bible, His revealed Word. But general revelation came three ways. Remember? Nature, God's creation. How you can look at creation and say, well, this just came from nothing. This just came about over millions of years, and what you do is you put your faith in time and chance. If you believe in evolution, you're putting your faith in time, lots of time, and chance. And to me, that does not bear logic or common sense. What does God say? The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day they utter speech, and night after night they show knowledge. There is no voice nor language where there are uh, no people, no tribe, no nation where their voice is not heard. God has declared his reality through the amazing, incredible, incomprehensible creation. It's his painting. You wouldn't look at Mona Lisa and say, well, that just happened over time. That frame just sat there, and it sat there for millions of years, and the winds blew just right, and the dust fell just right, and the paint chips came together over time and just created that incredible picture of Mona Lisa. That's just the Mona Lisa. Look at the animals, the birds, your eyeballs, your heart, your circulatory system. Look at the uniformity of life. Look at the creation. And tell me, over time, everything just sort of decided to come together? Uh-uh. It's intentional design. All right? Now, providence is another way, general revelation, that God is ruling over all the universe. I promise you, the devil's not ruling the universe, and man is not ruling the universe. God is. And then finally, the conscience. God has written his law in every, every heart. Uh, Paul says in Romans 1, every man, every woman, every child, without excuse, because God has put his word, his law, in our hearts and in our minds. It's called the conscience. So that you can go find somebody in, a, in, in some far distant tribe that have no TVs, no medium, no, no nothing, but you'll find that they know murder is wrong. 
They know theft is wrong. They know they have an innate sense of what's right and wrong because God put his law in their hearts, and it's the conscience. And God says, you're without excuse. If you live and die and never accept Christ and go your own way, you will answer for your conscience, and you will answer for what you saw in God's creation. Now, let's move on. Where does the word Bible come from? Bible is the name commonly used to designate the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament. 39 old, 27 new. Uh, these books of the New Testament, these 66 books, make up one book, Biblos, the Bible. So what you've got in your hand is 66 books that make up one book. One book. The Bible is one, and it's called Biblos, or the Bible. Now, when the holy men of old, remember where that verse said, Peter told us, that holy men of old were moved by the Holy Ghost and wrote down what God impressed them to write. When the holy men of old were moved by the Holy Spirit, they wrote down what they received with the following things. I'm just going to show you, go all the way back to the beginning. How do we get it? Here's how they, here's how they did it. First, a pen. But the pens back then were not the kind we've got now. They, it was a pointed reed, a little picture of that in the bottom right. A pointed reed made out of rushes about 6 to 16 inches long. Uh, and Joe, can you ask Jeff if he can move the picture over a little bit more for me because I'm losing the ends of my words. Thank you. But we're fine. Everybody say it's okay. Don't look back there. Look up at me. All right. Um, the end of the, the reed was cut to a flat, chisel-like shape that enabled them to write with thick and thin strokes. They would write with a thick stroke, a thin stroke, and that's what Hebrew lettering looks like. The ink they used was made from charcoal, gum, and water. Guarantee you, we've got it easier with writing today. Now, the paper was made of papyrus. From the papyrus plant, it was beaten after being cut into thin, narrow slices. And when it was dried, the white surface was polished smooth with a stone. Now, they went through a lot to write something. I mean, we just go to the store and buy a big stack of paper. Man, they had to cut it. They had to pound it. They had to polish it. And then they had to go make ink out of gum and all these things. Then they had to write with a reed. But God moved on these holy men of old to write. And what they wrote was Theonoustos, breathed out by God. And on the bottom right again, you see a little uh, picture of papyrus paper. And there it is. We've all seen it. And uh, sheets of papyrus would then be glued together, wound around a stick, and this made a what? Scroll. And that's a scroll. We've all seen those. In King James, uh, in Shakespearean plays, they're always rolling out a scroll and uh, reading from it. Well, that's the way the Bible was first done. They wrote on sheet after sheet after of papyrus, then glued them together, then rolled them all up around sticks into a scroll. And then they were sent out to the churches. The average scroll, imagine this, was 20 to 35 feet long. Hey, honey, bring me today's paper. And you rolled it out all the way. I mean, think about that. But look what Guinness record was, a 144-foot scroll. That's the record. That's a lot of gluing, and that's a lot of writing. Now, then a, a handwritten copy of Scripture is called what, everyone? When, they, when, when Simon Peter, for instance, and there went my clicker, when Simon Peter uh, was moved on by the Holy Spirit and sat down to write, 
and began to write what the Lord was showing him, when he finished, he had a manuscript. That's what we call it. That's the original. Now, keep in mind, very important, that because papyrus was perishable, we have few of the original manuscripts of Scripture today. There's just not very many of them. So the way we got our Bible went something like this. First, there was an original copy, such as Paul's letter to the Romans. He wrote it, moved along, inspired by, moved along by the Holy Spirit with a reed pen, dipping it into a little thing of ink on papyrus paper. Next, it was rolled around a stick into a scroll. Then later, copiers, and this is important. I'm going to go into this more next week. You really need to understand this. I know I did. Copiers then took that scroll and letter by letter, they took Simon Peter's original manuscript. Time passed. They said, this thing's beginning to wear out. So they took that manuscript and they began to copy letter by letter with that reed pen on a piece of papyrus. Slowly and that laboriously, they copied it. They did not have Microsoft Word. They did not have computers. They didn't have anything that makes it so easy for us today. It was laborious. They did it letter by letter precisely as it was given to Simon Peter. Now, then further on, more copiers took those copies and went through the very same process. Now, that happened year after year, and guess what? Century after century. Now, we know that this was the process God used based on the Bible's own testimony, that it was brought down to us by faithful copiers in the beginning. For instance, let's look at Ezra, and in Ezra we read these words. This Ezra came up from Babylon at the end of the Babylonian captivity. He came up from Babylon. He was released to go and rebuild uh, the temple and the wall and the city of Jerusalem. So, here comes Ezra, and what does it say about Ezra? He was a teacher well-versed in what? Read it to me. The law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Now, notice the Bible says God gave the law of Moses. And now, let's go on and read a little bit further. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees uh, and laws in Israel. So Ezra had devoted himself to teaching what, what of the word they had. And what they had of the word was Moses' law. And how in the world do you think he got it? Ezra was a teacher of the law of Moses and was teaching Moses' law at the end of the Babylonian captivity. But that Babylonian captivity was hundreds of years after Moses had died. Hundreds of years, centuries. So how did he get Moses' law? The faithful copyists. They copied it. And they passed it down. And so by the work, faithful work of those copyists, they had the law. Centuries later. One more example is found in 2 Kings. Here we read of King Josiah. This is one of my favorite stories. The kingdom of Israel was in disarray. The temple had been totally neglected. They had allowed it to go, to, to, just to be trashed. Uh, to, they weren't paying any attention to it. They weren't keeping it up. And the Bible goes on to say that King Josiah ordered the temple to be restored. And while they were in there 
restoring the temple, they came across a book, or really, rather, a scroll. And they said, what's this? And they opened up this scroll and kind of blew the dust off it and realized that what they were reading was the law of Moses. And it had been so neglected, it had not been read for years and years and years. It was out of the minds of the people. It was out of the minds of Israel. They had forgotten the word of God, but they blew the dust off and opened up the scroll and began to read it. Took it into Josiah and read it, and Josiah hit the ground. And he said, we are in big trouble. And the bright light of the word of God shone in upon them. And they said, the wrath of God is one step away from us. We have grieved him. We have broken his word. And as a result of that, he called the kingdom of Israel together. And he said, we better fast and pray. We better do some reforms. And Josiah's famous reforms were set in motion. Now, how in the world did they get the law of Moses all the way down into Josiah's time? The process of copying. Because Josiah was even further along than Ezra. But they had the Word of God, and there it was. And folks, anytime you open up the Word, and anytime you read it where it hadn't been read, it's like a light shining into a dark place. And if you'll just stay with the Word of God, it'll bring revival, it'll bring repentance, people will start getting right. It's when we forsake the Word of God, we get into big trouble. Is it therefore any wonder, since we took the Word out of our schools... Come on, church. We took the word out. Now we got metal detectors in. What happened? The same thing that happened here. When the word of God was neglected, the people went down. The temple went into disrepair. They cared nothing about the things of God. When the word of God was discovered and read, it brought revival, repentance, and rightness with God. Powerful. Now, how do we know that the original manuscripts were faithfully and accurately copied? How do you know? How do you know that some guy didn't say, well, you know what, I don't agree with that. So that's not the way I'm going to copy it. I'm going to put my own idea in there. How many of you think that's possible, knowing people? Come on. I mean, isn't that, and that used to bother me. When I found out about the copyist and the way it was all done, I thought, well, how do I know that that one guy way back there in the 3rd and 4th century, somewhere back there, decided, I don't agree with that. I think God meant this and did not copy it right. How do you know? Well, here's my number one foundation stone of faith when it comes to the Word of God. Jesus had complete confidence that the Old Testament was the faithfully copied and accurate Word of God. And if it's good enough for Jesus, hey, it's good enough for me. You know why we're here? You know why we're here? We're here because of Jesus. We're not here to be religious. We're here because of Jesus. Why do you have that Bible? Well, I'm going to show you in a minute. It's all about Jesus. Why are you here on a Wednesday night worshiping God when you could be doing something else? Because of Jesus. Who changed your life? Jesus. Who died for you? Jesus did. Who rose from the dead so that you'll rise from the dead someday? Jesus did. We're here because of Jesus. And Jesus obviously had full confidence that the Word of God, that is the Old Testament they had, was the very Word of God faithfully handed down. Let's look at some evidence. Jesus said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now the law was Moses and the prophets. That's the Old Testament. He said, don't you dare think that I've come to do away with it. He said, I have not come to do away with it, but to fulfill it. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. 
not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a reed pen, will by any means disappear from the law till everything is accomplished. I'm telling you, folks, heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. You've got your hands on a book that is as sol- more solid than, the, than, than steel. You can stand on it, walk on it, live by it, die by it, sleep by it. Kathy and I were talking. We, we've been through some hard times uh, from here and there, and we were talking the other day about how uh, she at times went to sleep with the Word of God just being held. There were times I went to sleep just holding the Word of God close. You know why? It's a meteorite. It's from another world. It's from heaven. It's from God. It's God's mail to you. It's his love note to you. And so you ought to love every verse because it was sent with love, signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Ghost. Thank God for the Word of God. So Jesus said, you're not going to have the smallest comma pass away without all of it being fulfilled. He said to them, How foolish you are. Now, he's talking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after he had been resurrected. And they're telling Jesus all about how Jesus had been crucified. They're talking to the one who was crucified. It's funny, kind of. It's weird. You've been living here and you don't know what happened to this Jesus. They started witnessing to Jesus about Jesus. Jesus let him go on. And then Jesus said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Now notice he mentioned the prophets that had spoken. That's Old Testament. And beginning with who, everyone? Moses. And what is Moses? The law. Beginning with Moses, the first five books, the Pentateuch. All right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. First five, notice, beginning with Moses, the law, and all the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all the minor prophets, he explained to them what was said in what? Read it with me. All the scriptures. What scriptures? There was no New Testament, the Old Testament. What was he saying? He was saying, you better know that the Old Testament is the word of God and spoke of me. Hmm. What does it say? He says, in all the scriptures, he explained to them, he opened up Moses, he opened up the prophets, and used all the scriptures to teach them about him. Wow. Now, other New Testament writers, such as Paul and Peter, fully believe that the copies they possessed of the Old Testament were the very word of God. Paul made his view of the Old Testament clear in 2 Timothy. A letter... Uh, and I can't, filled with instruction for a younger minister. He wrote that from childhood, you have known what? Everybody say it with me. The Holy, he's talking to Timothy from childhood. Now, is Timothy living in the New Testament days? Yes, Jesus had come, lived, died, and resurrected. But what scriptures did they have? What scriptures did Timothy have growing up? He didn't have the New Testament. He had the Old Testament. And what did Paul say? From childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures, and the Holy Scriptures Paul was talking about um, was the Old Testament. And he said that Old Testament was able to make you wise unto salvation. Why was the Old Testament able to make Timothy wise unto salvation? Because the Old Testament spoke of Jesus. 
And at the time this was written, it was about A.D. 66, so there was no New Testament. In Acts 28, here's another example, describes Paul's arrival in Rome and the conditions of his confinement there while awaiting trial. He could not leave, but he could receive visitors. So Paul had visitors. Now what did he do? He redeemed his time in jail. So when they had appointed him a day, look who came to visit him. Many of the Jewish leaders who had a lot to do with having him thrown in jail, they came to see him. And what did he do when they came to see him? He explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God. How did he do it? Persuading them concerning who? Jesus. From where? Read it for me. From both the law of Moses and the prophets. From morning until evening. I mean, that dude could preach. Uh, listen, my wife says now, you, you, you need, and this is only Kathy can do this, but she says now you need to keep your messages in a certain time period or they're going to start fading on you. Now, a good wife can say that to you. But now watch this. She wouldn't like Paul at all. Because Paul would go all day and sometimes all night where they fell out of windows and, and, and got hurt and he had to go heal them because they fell out of a window going to sleep listening to him preach. But he didn't have to be on radio and be timed. But anyway, now notice, he talked to them all day out of what? The law of Moses and the prophets. About what? Jesus. So the Old Testament's full of Jesus. All right? Well, I can't read that. Let me see. 695 separate quotations from the books of the Old Testament are found in the New Testament. Think about that. So the New Testament obviously believes in the Old Testament. And that includes Genesis. That includes creation, the fall, the flood, Jonah, the tower, 695 times. Now look at this. Of the 26 books and letters forming the New Testament, 20 of those books quote the Old Testament. 20 of them, 20 out of 26. Only nine of the 39 books of the Old Testament are not quoted in the New Testament. Wow. You know what the Bible's all about? I want you to say his name with me. Jesus. Your Bible is all about Jesus. The Bible taken as a whole is all about Christ Jesus. When talking to two of his downcast disciples, uh, he, and I've already read this, but he said, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe the prophets and what they wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted in the Old Testament that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Haven't you read the Old Testament? It's all about me. I tell you, that Bible is all about Jesus. Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, Jesus said that Moses and all the prophets, including all the Scriptures, in some way or another, spoke about him. So you can open up the Old Testament, and anywhere you go, somehow or another, it's pointing to Jesus hinting at Jesus, talking about Jesus, anticipating Jesus. The whole thing is about Jesus. It's been rightly said, and I like this. Can you read this with me? That the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Now, that's a great statement. The Old Testament anticipates his coming. The Old Testament's like a finger pointing down the road saying, He's coming. He's coming, he's coming, I'm telling you, he's coming. And it anticipates him. The Gospels celebrate 
his arrival. The epistles elaborate on how to live in light of his coming. And Revelations, once again, anticipates his coming a second time. Here's the Old Testament saying he's coming, and did he come? Now, here's the New Testament, especially the book of Revelation, saying he's coming. Is he going to come? You better believe it. The earliest Bibles have no chapters and no verse distinctions, just to kind of let you know that. There were no chapters, no verses. The Bible was divided into chapters in the year 1227 and into verses at around 1551. Until then, it was just a continual read, no chapters, no verses. Isn't that cool? So you rolled out that scroll. You had nothing to help you. You just had to start reading. Now, let's talk about the time period of the Bible, time span for the writing of the Bible. It covers about 1,500 years. The Old Testament was written in around 1,000 years, and the New Testament took about 50 years to complete. Now, keep in mind, there was 400 years of prophetic silence between Malachi and Matthew. Four centuries when God did not speak. Boy, I wouldn't have wanted to live in that time for anything. Four centuries of nothing. The Old Testament was written around 1445 to 400 years before Christ, and uh, the New Testament about A.D. 50 to A.D. 100, just so you'll know. Now, how in the world, let's get down to it, and we're going to close this tonight. How in the world was our Bible, the books in it, how were they decided upon? Who decided? When we use the phrase canon, can you say it with me canon? Now, you probably immediately picture something shooting, don't you? a gun, a cannon. But the canon of Scripture means simply an officially accepted list of books. Okay? One commentator says when we speak of the canon of Scripture, the word canon means the list of books contained in Scripture, the list of books recognized as worthy to be included in the sacred writings of a worshiping community. Now, the significance of canonicity is this, that the scriptures are indeed inspired by God. And then here comes a question. If it's inspired by God, then which books were inspired? Because the books in your Bible are not even close to all the books that were floating around when they decided to make your Bible, when they chose the books to be a part of the Holy Bible. So, historically, It was important for the people of God to determine which books God had inspired and which books were recognized as authoritative, okay? So the question question arises, who or what determined which books were canonical? Who decided, hey, I want Philippians in there, but I don't want one of the books out of the Apocrypha in there? How many of you were raised in the Catholic Church and you know about the Apocrypha? All right. In our Bible, the Apocrypha wasn't included. Why not? Who decided Philippians made it and the books in the Apocrypha did not? All right? First, real important. Can you say this with me? God determines the canon. All right? A book is not inspired because men made it canonical. It is canonical because God inspired it. Okay? Now, so canonicity is determined by inspiration whether it's the product of that which was breathed out by God. How many of you want to be sure that what you're holding in your hand was breathed out by God? That it's not just some man writing. Amen? Boy, I do. Because that's why our Bible defeats the devil. It's God-inspired. Now, 
From the beginning, the inspired writings of the Old Testament came about real simply this way. They were collected by the Jews and revered as sacred and divinely authoritative. For instance, Moses put the book of the covenant, including the Ten Commandments, into writing and the people agreed to obey it. They said, Amen. This is the Word of God. The book of the covenant became part of the book of Exodus and immediately was accepted as the Word of God. The book of Deuteronomy. How many of you ever tried to read Deuteronomy? Not easy, is it? But it's inspired. Now watch this. The book of Deuteronomy was immediately stored by the ark in the tabernacle after Moses wrote it. And later, it, with the rest of the law of Moses, was moved to the temple. So they considered Deuteronomy and the writings of Moses inspired. All right? Joshua added his words and set them up in the sanctuary of the Lord. And later on, Old Testament books quote earlier Old Testament books as authoritative. You'll see different ones quoting different ones. The book of Moses, which were, or the books of Moses, which were immediately recognized as canonical, were cited throughout the Old Testament from Joshua to Malachi. Moses was considered inspired. The events of Joshua are referred to in Judges. The books of Kings cites the life of David as told in Samuel. And what does all this mean? It means simply this. The Old Testament books refer to each other, support and affirm each other, and they flow in a beautiful unity. Though the writers did not talk to one another, did not sit down and say, now we're going to write a Bible. No, the Holy Spirit guided them, and there is this beautiful unity of flow in the Old Testament. It doesn't contradict itself. Not to mention, Jesus clearly accepted the canonicity of the Old Testament as we've already discussed. Look at what Jesus talked about. He referred to creation, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, marriage. I didn't put that in there, but it just occurred to me. Jonah, Moses, Abraham. He said Jonah was in the belly of a great fish. The fall of Satan, the fall of man. He went into all of those things. So can you say with me, Jesus believed in Genesis. Hallelujah. Jesus believed in Genesis. So, hey, that's why we ought to be teaching creationism in schools if for no other reason Jesus believed in Genesis. Now, unlike the Old Testament that was written over a thousand-year period, the entire New Testament canon was written within 50 years. Wow. And that includes the Revelation. Now, early on in the life of the early church, the church experienced a growing need to decide whether a book should be included in the official New Testament canon. And here's the reasons. In other words, they got to the place where they said, we've got to know what the Word of God is and what it's not. Why did they get to that place? The early church was interested in collecting those books that were inspired and thus prophetic. The works written by the apostles and prophets were considered valuable and worthy of preservation. The early church needed to know which books should be read in the churches as the Word of God and which books could be used to determine God's will for doctrine and living. Because churches were forming, and they had to know, is this book inspired and is this one inspired? Should we stand up and read these writings to the saints? What is the Word of God and what isn't? 
we've got to figure this out and come up with a New Testament canon. So they moved along. They needed to defend the faith. As the Christian movement was confronted with philosophical and religious trends current in the Mediterranean world of its time, the need for an authentic expression and preservation of the foundation of uh, belief became the basic motivation toward the realization of the New Testament canon. They had to defend the faith. Now, why am I teaching you this? Because you are going to have to defend your faith. That's why I'm teaching you this. Every pastor ought to be teaching their people this. Because the whole culture is saying, you're a bunch of nuts. And we don't believe what you do. And we're going to secularize this culture. Convince me as to why we should listen to you. Well, one thing, you've got to be able to go back and say, here's how we got our Bible. And here's why we believe what we do. And you're going to have to defend the faith. Now, uh, this grew more acute after the demise of the first generation of eyewitnesses. When the apostles died off who had seen Jesus, they needed a canon. They needed a Bible, a New Testament of accepted books that they knew were inspired. Now, there was heresy threats. Do we have any heresy threats today? Do you all know that there's a million heresies on every corner? All right, heresy threats. The early church needed to know exactly which books were canonical because certain heretics were coming up with their own canons. Okay? Persecutions. Here's a big one. Diocletians, persecution of Christians from A.D. 303 to 306. It was ferocious. Included the confiscating and destroying of New Testament books. Diocletian ordered the destruction of copied manuscripts that they had of the apostles' letters. So this persecution motivated the church to sort through and settle on which books were really Scripture and which books were worth suffering for, and I'll take it a step further, worth dying for. This Diocletian, one of many emperors, was lopping off your head, was uh, tying you to stakes and burning you at night. And why? Because you were carrying copy. Listen, if I'm going to die for some book I'm reading, it better be the inspired Word of God. I mean, it better be the inspired Word of God. So they want to know, hey, if we're going to die, we want to know which one's inspired. And how did the early church decide which books deserved to be in the accepted canon? Five guidelines, and we're going to close with this. Inspiration was the first one. As with the Old Testament canonicity of New Testament writings was based on inspiration, only those works that have been inspired by God were to be part of the canon. The early church fathers had a policy. If in doubt, throw it out. And I like that. As a matter of fact, there's a sermon title. If in doubt, throw it out. Another way to put it, if, if, if you doubt it, don't do it. If in doubt, don't. Now, here's the second guideline. Not just inspiration, but apostolic authority. Very important. Listen carefully, church. Every New Testament book has apostolic authority. Since they were written by apostles or close associates of the apostles of Jesus. All right? The apostles being the twelve. Look at your New Testament here. Matthew, an apostle. Mark was close to Simon Peter. Luke, 
was a close associate of Paul, Dr. Luke. John, an apostle. Paul, an apostle. Peter, an apostle. James, half-brother to Jesus and leader of the church in Jerusalem. I'd say he was pretty close. Jude, a half-brother to Jesus. The writer of Hebrews, though we don't know who it was, was associated with the ministries of the apostles. It says so in Hebrews 2, 3 to 4. So, if it's inspired, it came from one of the apostles or someone close to the apostles. Now, third guideline, it had to come out of the apostolic era. If a writing was the work of an apostle or someone uh, closely associated with an apostle, it must belong to the apostolic age. Writings of later date, whatever their merit, no matter how good they sounded, were not included among the apostolic or canonical books. So it had to come from the age of the apostles, period. Now let me give you a little tip tonight. That's a great guideline. You ought not put it in the Bible unless it came from one of the twelve or their age or somebody close to the twelve. Good. Now, today, you hear all kinds of teachings on TV, radio. You can go to a Christian bookstore and look in the shelves, and some of what I see on Christian bookshelves curls my hair. Now watch this. You still got to apply the same guideline. Did these teachings come from apostolic New Testament teaching? If it didn't, throw it out. Throw it out. And then finally, orthodoxy. No works could be canon if they contradicted the teachings of the apostles that set forth the, un, uh, the teaching of the apostolic faith, the faith set forth in the undisputed books. So there you go. And then finally, universal church recognition, a work which enjoyed only local recognition was not included. It had to be recognized. Churches all over the place had to amen that letter. So there you go. The Bible in your hand The books in it went through incredible scrutiny before they were decided to be included in the official canon. You have a Bible of 66 books that received the amen of all kinds of people that were scrutinized by the godly, decided upon, and then put into that Bible in your hand. Let's stand together, can we? Can you say with me, the Bible is inspired and authoritative, and the completed canon is the universally accepted divine Word of God. And I'm going to add one more thing. Hold it up and say, this Bible is feared by the enemy of my soul. It is God-breathed. It is without error. It is my lamp, my guide, my absolute truth. Heaven and earth may pass away, but this word will endure forever. I give the Lord a hand of praise today. Amen. Now, next time, right before we go into Genesis, I'm going to talk about an astonishing discovery and other bothersome facts for the unbeliever. And I want you to be able to defend the faith. All right, Father, we just thank you for the Word of God. 
We thank you, Lord God, how it was passed down and became canon. We thank you that it's divinely inspired God breathed. And we thank you, Lord, that you preserved it through the ages so that we could walk in truth, live our lives out according to the will of God, and also, Lord, have a great anticipation and knowledge of what is coming upon the world. Thank you for the prophetic word found in this Bible. Now, Lord, help us to reach others with it and with the truth in it and the Jesus Christ who is the center of it. In his name, amen. Well, all right. Anything you want to say, Kathy?